Welcome to Music History Monday for November 30th, 2020. I'm Bob Greenberg, and the title for today's podcast is Fortwängler. If you haven't already, please consider joining me on my subscription site at patreon.com slash robertgreenbergmusic, where I blog, vlog, podcast, pontificate, review, and bloviate four to six times a week. We mark the death on November 30th, 1954, 66 years ago today, of the German conductor and composer Gustav Heinrich Ernst Martin Wilhelm Fortwangler, who was one of the most important and controversial musicians of the 20th century. We will talk all about Maestro Fortwangler in just a moment. But first, November 30th is a busy day in music history, and we have some important births and deaths to mark. We mark the birth on November 30th, 1813, 207 years ago today, of the French pianist, composer, and teacher Charles Valentin Alken in Paris. Alken was a great piano virtuoso and an equally great oddball who composed some of the most impossibly virtuosic piano music ever put to paper. Tomorrow's Dr. Bob Prescribes post will celebrate Alken and his Grand Sonata, Opus 33, his Sonatine, Opus 61, and his 12 Etudes in All the Minor Keys, Opus 39, Number 12, an etude entitled Aesop's Feast. The following three November 30th-oriented entries all deal with musicians who made a profound impression on me growing up in the 1960s. Long before Weird Al Yankovic, born 1959, created satirical songs parodying pop culture, there was Alan Sherman, who was born on this date in 1924 in Chicago, 96 years ago today. Sherman was primarily a creator of contrafacta. He assigned new words to old melodies, perhaps most famously converting Amalcare Poncelli's Dance of the Hours from La Gioconda into a letter from summer camp. Hello, mother. Hello, father. I lived for Sherman's first three albums, My Son the Folk Singer, 1962, My Son the Celebrity, 1963, and My Son, The Nut, 1963, albums that I still have memorized. Poor Alan Sherman. He died broke, broken, and forgotten, though not by me, in 1973, at the age of 48. It was on this day in 2017 that the actor, singer, and comedian Jim Neighbors passed away at the age of 87. His signature role was that of a good-natured, unsophisticated, pre-Forrest Gump Southern boy named Gomer Pyle. Initially a cast member of The Andy Griffith Show, the character Gomer Pyle proved so popular that Neighbors got his own spin-off show, Gomer Pyle USMC, which ran from 1964 to 1969. Gomer's familiar taglines were, Golly! A wide-eyed, Shazam! And most memorably, surprise, surprise, surprise. The show was based on a dramatic premise called Fish Out of Water, 
like its exact contemporary, the Beverly Hillbillies, Gomer Pyle, USMC, featured a rustic character out and abroad, removed from his native rural setting. This show was sweet, if dumb and predictable, but I liked it because every now and again, Jim Neighbors would sing, and when this guy sang, no country bumpkin was he. Neighbors had a big, beautiful, silky smooth baritone voice. Finally, it was on November 30th, 1996, 24 years ago today, that the singer and ukulele player Herbert Boutros Corey, known by many stage names but most famously as Tiny Tim, died while performing in Minneapolis, Minnesota at the age of 71. Corey, who had been a staple on the Greenwich Village nightclub scene for years, was instantly vaulted to fame when he appeared on Dan Rowan and Dick Martin's NBC show Laugh-In on January 22, 1968. While Corey's most famous number was Tiptoe Through the Tulips with Me, he made his national television debut singing a medley of A Tisket, A Tasket and On the Good Ship Lollipop. A link to that performance can be found in the text version of this podcast. I remember watching the show and the look of incredulity on Dick Martin's face in the video matched our own at home. Wilhelm Furtwandler was born on January 25, 1886 in the German municipality of Schöneberg, which is today a district within the city of Berlin. He came from a highly respected, intellectually accomplished family. His father, Adolf, was an archaeologist and his mother, a painter. He received a high-end musical education from a young age. Wilhelm's great ambition was to be a composer, and he took up conducting in order to be able to perform his own works. Unfortunately, by the time he was 20, his music was not being well received, though his conducting was. Fortwangler wisely chose to pursue a career as a conductor and quickly climbed the conductorial ranks. In 1920, at the age of 34, he succeeded Richard Strauss as the conductor of the Berlin Staatskapelle, the resonant orchestra of the Berlin State Opera, the equivalent of the Vienna Philharmonic, which is the resonant orchestra of the Vienna State Opera. In 1922, Fort Wangler was appointed conductor of the Leipzig Gefandhaus Orchestra, and soon after, the plum came his way. He was appointed music director of the Berlin Philharmonic Orchestra, the BPO, following the death of the great Arthur Nikisch, 1855-1922. Fort Wangler was one of the most influential conductors of the 20th century. He grew out of the so-called subjective late 19th century romantic conducting tradition of Wagner, Mahler, and Nikisch, a tradition that held that a conductor's job was to go beyond the score to find the spirit of a work. If this meant constant fluctuations of tempo not indicated in the score, so be it. If this meant changing tempi outright, so be it. If this meant disregarding a composer's notated expressive instructions in favor of your own expressive ideals, so be it. If, on top of everything, this meant conducting with a beat that players found almost impossible to follow, forcing them 
to watch Furtwangler's face rather than his baton? So be it. For all of Furtwangler's conductorial idiosyncrasies, his results were spectacular, particularly with orchestras who knew him. Writes Harold Schoenberg, quote, Recordings fail to do him justice. He was the kind of interpreter who, with his peculiar kind of force, raptus, and psychic transmission, could do things in a concert hall that sounded exactly right, but can sound arbitrary and mannered on records. In the concert hall, his absorption was a psychological cement binding things together. And there, his ideas were in turn lyric, dramatic, colossal, inevitable. His performances impressed listeners as logical and beautiful when experienced in the presence. According to the composer Paul Hindemith, 1895 to 1963, a close friend of Fort Wangler's, quote, Fort Wangler possessed the great secret of proportion. He understood how to interpret phrases, themes, sections, movements, entire symphonies, and programs as artistic unities. Unquote. Of Fort Wangler, the great Romanian born conductor Sergiu Celebedache, 1912 to 1996, wrote quote, With Toscanini, I never felt anything spiritual. With Fort Wangler, on the other hand, I was confronted by something completely different metaphysics, transcendence, the relationship between sounds and sonorities. Fort Wangler was not only a musician, he was a creator, unquote. According to Daniel Bernboim, Fort Wangler, quote, had a subtlety of tone color that was extremely rare. His sound was always rounded and incomparably more interesting than that of the great German conductors of his generation, unquote. According to such diverse composers and musicians as Arnold Schoenberg, Arthur Honecker, Paul Hindemith, Dietrich Fischer-Dieskau, Yehudi Menuhin, Pablo Casals, Claudio Arau, and Elisabeth Schwarzkopf, to name a few, Fort Wangler was the greatest conductor they ever worked with. Okay, we are honor-bound to observe that not everyone has bought into Fort Wangler's way of doing things. The critic David Hurwitz, born 1961, refers to Fort Wangler's fans as, quote, the Fort Wangler wackos, who will forgive him virtually any lapse, no matter how severe, unquote. John Ardoin, 1935 to 2001, who was for 32 years the music critic for the Dallas Morning News, recalled a conversation he had in August 1968 with Maria Callas after they had together heard a performance of Beethoven's Symphony No. 8 conducted by George Zell. Quote, Well, Callas sighed, you see what we have been reduced to. We are now in a time when a Zell is considered a master. How small he is next to Furtwangler. Reeling in disbelief, not at her verdict, with which I agreed, but from the unvarnished acuteness of it, I stammered, But how do you know Fortwangler? You never sang with him. How do you think? She stared at me with equal disbelief. He started his career after the war in Italy in 1947. I heard dozens of his concerts there. To me, he was Beethoven. Unquote.
when he started, or should we properly say, restarted his career after the war, after he'd been denazified. And therein lies the controversy. As Fort Wangler was the only major conductor to not just have remained in Nazi Germany during the war, but apparently to have thrived in Nazi Germany during the war. My Music History Monday post of July 10th, 2017, entitled To Dance with the Devil, recognized the birth in 1895 of the German composer and educator Karl Orff. The post dealt with Orff's cheek-to-cheek dance with the Nazis and the degree to which that dance has colored his reputation and that of his masterwork, Carmina Burana of 1937, a work written for and embraced by the Nazi party. Wilhelm Furtwängler is often painted with the same collaborationist brush as Orff. But unlike Orff, or for that matter, Richard Strauss and Herbert von Karajan, Furtwängler was not an amoral person, willing to look askance at actions of the regime provided it left him alone to do his work. Many have accused Furtwängler of being monumentally naive in his dealing with the Nazi regime, but this he was not. Okay, he might have been a little naive, but more than anything, he was a patriot and an altruist. The list of noble and dangerous actions Fort Wangler took against the regime from Hitler's rise to power in 1933 to the end of the war in 1945 can fill a book. The list of ignoble actions he took can hardly fill a sentence. A sampling of Fort Wangler's more noble actions. In 1932, just months before Hitler came to power, Fort Wangler wrote, quote, This hissing street peddler will never get anywhere in Germany, unquote. Just days after Hitler came to power on January 30th, 1933, Fort Wangler, wanting to make a statement, asked the pianist Arthur Schnabel and the violinist Bronislaw Huberman, both of whom were Jewish, to be his first soloists in the upcoming BPO season. The honor of the offer notwithstanding, both Schnabel and Huberman turned him down. Furtwangler's personal intervention saved many, many musicians. He helped to get the composer Arnold Schoenberg, the conductor Josef Cripps, and the violinist Karl Flesch out of Europe. He used his influence to have Max Zweig, a nephew of the conductor Fritz Zweig, released from the concentration camp at Dachau. A director at the Ministry of Culture named Jörg Gerulus bitched in a letter to propaganda minister Josef Goebbels, quote, can you name me a Jew on whose behalf Fort Wangler has not intervened? Unquote. No, Goebbels could not. And because of his prestige, Fort Wangler was able to protect the majority of the Jewish musicians of the BPO. After the war, a number of those he saved came forward, including Hugo Strelitzer, 1896-1981, who declared, quote, if I am alive today, I owe this to this great man. Fort Wangler helped and protected a great number of Jewish musicians, and this attitude shows a great deal of courage since he did it under the eyes of the Nazis in Germany itself. History will be his judge." Unquote. On April 10, 1933, 
Fortwangler published a public letter to Goebbels denouncing the anti-Semitism of the new regime. Fortwangler was called into the Chancellor's office, and he and Hitler got into a shouting match. Soon after, in 1934, Fortwangler went so far as to publicly describe Hitler as being, quote, an enemy of the human race, unquote, and the political situation in Germany as being a Schweinerei, a disgrace, meaning literally swinishness. Reichsfuhrer Heinrich Himmler advocated putting Fortwangler in a concentration camp, but in the end, he was simply too important, and so the Nazi leadership did everything it could to co-opt him, but they never succeeded. Despite being given prestigious titles by the Nazis, Fortwangler refused to join the Nazi party. He refused to give the Hitler salute or sign his letters Heil Hitler, even those letters he sent to Hitler, a major Nazi faux pas, people were shot for much less. Before the war began, when conducting in London and Paris, he outright refused to conduct Nazi anthems or to play music in concert halls decorated with swastikas. Soon after the Nazi takeover of Austria in March 1938, Fortwangler was scheduled to conduct the Vienna Philharmonic in Vienna's Musikverein. He arrived at the hall to find a huge swastika flag on display. He refused to conduct, quote, as long as the rag is visible, unquote. The flag was removed. In 1936, Fortwangler was allowed to conduct at the Wagner Festival in Bayreuth for the first time since 1931. Hitler attended the festival, intent on convincing Fortwangler to belatedly get with the program. Friedland Wagner, Richard Wagner's granddaughter, remembered the exchange between the two of them this way, quote, I remember Hitler turning to Fortwangler and telling him that he would now have to allow himself to be used by the party for propaganda purposes. And I remember that Fortwangler refused categorically. Hitler flew into a fury and told Fortwangler that in that case, there would be a concentration camp ready for him. Fortwangler quietly replied, quote, In that case, Herr Reichskanzler, at least I will be in very good company. Hitler couldn't even answer and vanished from the room, unquote. With or without his help, the Nazi propaganda machine made it appear as if Fortwangler was a proponent of the regime, an impression Fortwangler was powerless to refute. And that's how things remained until December 1944, when Albert Speer, Hitler's personal architect and minister of armaments and war production, advised Fortwangler to flee to Switzerland as the Geheime Staatspolizei, the secret state police, abbreviated as Gestapo, would soon be coming for him. Following a concert on January 28, 1945, with the Vienna Philharmonic in Vienna, Furtwangler made his move. He fled to Switzerland, according to the New Grove Dictionary of Music and Musicians, quote, within a few hours of being arrested, unquote, by the Gestapo. Among the works on the program that night was Brahms' Symphony No. 2. It was a brilliant performance recorded live. A link to that recording can be found in the print version of this podcast. 
After the war formally ended on May 8, 1945, Fort Wangler made his way back to the ruins of his native Berlin, there to resurrect his beloved Berlin Philharmonic Orchestra. He was put on ice for two years, as he had to go through a so-called denazification trial. In his closing remarks at the trial, Fort Wangler said, quote, I knew Germany was in a terrible crisis. I felt responsible for German music, and it was my task to survive this crisis as much as I could. The concern that my art was misused for propaganda had to yield to the greater concern that German music be preserved, that music be given to the German people by its own musicians. These people, the compatriots of Bach and Beethoven, of Mozart and Schubert, still had to go on living under the control of a regime obsessed with total war. No one who did not live here in those days can possibly judge what it was like. Does Thomas Mann, who was critical of Fort Wangler's actions, does Thomas Mann really believe that in the Germany of Himmler one should not be permitted to play Beethoven? Could he not realize that people never needed more, never yearned more to hear Beethoven and his message of freedom and human love than precisely these Germans who had to live under Himmler's terror? I do not regret having stayed with them." Unquote. In the end, the prosecution acknowledged that Furtwängler was innocent of anti-Semitism and sympathy for Nazi ideology, and he was cleared on all counts. But the court of public opinion has been another thing altogether, and painfully, tragically, 66 years to the day after his death, Fort Wangler's reputation still rests under a cloud. Let that cloud be gone. The Jewish writer and theater director Ernst Lothar, 1890-1974, wrote of Fort Wangler, quote, He was totally German, and he remained so. This is why he did not leave his defiled country, which was later counted to him as a stain by those who did not know him well enough. But he did not stay with Hitler and Himmler, but with Beethoven and Brahms." Unquote. Postscript. In 2018, a letter turned up written by the pianist Arthur Schnabel, 1882-1951, to his secret American lover, a woman named Mary Virginia Foreman. Haha, <laughs> some secret. The letter was written from Italy during the summer of 1947, at the time Fort Wangler had just resumed his conducting career. Schnabel writes, quote, Last night Fort Wangler and wife came to see me. It was partly pleasant, partly opposite. So far it seems to me that these Germans cannot be helped, nor can they help themselves. He demonstrated the same old blending of arrogance, cowardice, and self-pity. Now Fort Wangler, went as far last night, he got terribly excited, hysterical, shouted and roared, as to say that he never has known any Nazi, and that Germans and Nazis are not only absolutely different beings but hostile to each other." Unquote. According to the English music writer Norman Lebrecht, born 1948, writing in The Spectator on October 18, 2018, Schnabel's letter is the smoking gun unequivocal evidence of Fort Wangler's enduring guilt as a Nazi sympathizer, writes Lebrecht. 
Quote, This letter from an impeccable source with no axe to grind is a massive iconoclasm. It shatters the long-held image of Wilhelm Furtwängler as a man who did his best for music in terrible times and replaces it with a man in denial of his central role in the Nazi cultural myth, a willing executioner of music for the greater glory of the regime." Unquote. Really? A complex, 61-year-old man of genius, no doubt deep in his cups, having lived through the nightmare of the Nazi era and his own denazification, likely suffering from PTSD and a host of other debilitating emotional and anger issues, rants a pile of self-serving, defensive, and demonstrably false hooey at a private dinner party, one given by the Jewish pianist Arthur Schnabel, and because of that, that we're supposed to reevaluate his life and brand him as a willing executioner of music for the greater glory of the regime? I hate to blame the messenger here, but fuck off, Mr. Lebrecht. Could Fort Weingler be an arrogant jerk? No doubt. But his documented actions between 1933 and 1945 speak louder than the anecdotal reportage of a few unfortunate angry words. Thank you. To sample and download one or all of my many courses on subjects musical produced by The Great Courses slash The Teaching Company, please visit my website at robertgreenbergmusic.com.